Well, Merry Christmas. How's everybody doing? What is this, a library? Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah there we go. There we go. Uh, today's a, a big day for me. Today, I've officially lived in Rockwall for a year, which is awesome. And uh, it's, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, when my wife and I showed up in Dallas, my first thought was, where are all the trees? And then I realized... Steve, cut them all down. That's what, that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> so beautiful this time of year here. And uh, if you're anything like me, I come uh, to church around the Christmas season because I need that reminder, uh, maybe for you today, you need that reminder as we say to each other as disciples of Jesus that Jesus is the reason for the season. And uh, it's really easy, and I know you know this, to lose sight of that this time of year. And um, I remember even as a little boy, you start, I, I started looking around and thinking, how did we get you know, from you know, Jesus in a manger to cutting down trees and dragging them into the living room and putting socks over the fireplace? I mean, that just, it just seems strange. And it's so easy uh, because you just can't draw a straight line from Bethlehem uh, to how we celebrate Christmas in our world today. And, and uh, so what I want to do today is I want to back way up and I want to ask some questions about the first Christmas story that can so often this time of year uh, become fuzzy to us. And I want to look at the Christmas story and how it happened 2,000 years ago. And I want to look at some of the people and some of the characters in the story. And I want to look in particular at Mary, and I want to look at Herod uh, today. And I want to talk about what it means to white-knuckle something and what it means to hold on. Uh, when, when Jesus invites us to follow him, he told his disciples 2,000 years ago uh, that to have your life, you have to lose it that you have to let go. And I wanna talk about uh, how that begins in our life and where that begins. And uh, I'm gonna get to the passages later about elves and reindeer, but I wanna talk about uh, Mary and Jesus and, and, uh, and the Christmas story. 2,000 years ago, it didn't shock anybody that God came into the world. People were actually expecting 2,000 years ago that God was gonna come into the world. And there were a lot of leading candidates to be deified uh, a couple of thousand years ago. And in the same way in our world today that if you read the newspaper, or watch uh, CNN or Fox News, you hear about world leaders and there's a lot of names that are on the world stage. The same thing was true 2,000 years ago. Uh, and, and for most of us, maybe you know this, but the leading figure in the world 2,000 years ago was a man named Augustus Caesar. And he ruled the Roman Empire and he did it with an iron fist. Uh, he was about 60 years old the, the, around the time that Jesus was born. He had been in power for about 25 years or so, and he was a leading candidate to get deified. If anybody was going to be called God, it was going to be him. He had actually ushered in a, a time of peace, an era of peace in the world. It's called the, the Pax Romana, if you remember that from, from when, when you were in school. And he had ushered in this era of peace that no other Caesar had brought into the world. And he would have been a great candidate to be deified. He was on the top of the food chain. As well, 2,000 years ago, there was Mark Anthony. Some of you remember Mark Anthony. He was a, a great military general. He was a leading candidate to be deified. Cleopatra, she was on the world stage a couple thousand years ago. You remember her from Elizabeth Taylor movies. She, she was one of the leading candidates. I mean, if, if somebody was going to get deified, these are all great candidates. And people were expecting that that was going to happen. And the Christmas story would be shocking because you would expect that the announcement that God is arrived into the world would come from a Caesar at a Roman Senate gathering. This would be the appropriate forum to make this type of announcement. 
but instead, God enters into the world and he comes in a way that nobody expects and he comes to somebody that nobody expects. He shows up to a scandalized 14-year-old girl in the backwoods of Bethlehem, in the backwoods province of a Roman Empire. And he doesn't enter in at the top of things. And how profound for us 2,000 years later that he enters in at the lowest common denominator of society. He enters in at the bottom of the food chain. When Mary begins to say, there is some, I have a revolution in my womb. There, there is a baby that is going to be born into this world that is going to save the world from its sins. Nobody would have expected this. And we don't talk about Mary a whole lot often in church, especially for those of us that grew up Protestant like I did. In fact, most of what we know about Mary, we learn about from Christmas carols and we learn about from nativity scenes. That's sort of the, the picture that we form in our head of who Mary is. We learn about from songs like Silent Night, uh, where we sing that. It's a song we sing you know, this, this time of year over and over again, uh, which whoever wrote that song has never actually been in a real delivery room. But they, we sing that as this reminder of what that night was like. We also learn about Mary from, from nativity scenes where we dust Mary off once a year and we place her on the fireplace or we put her in the yard and she's sort of relegated to the corner and she has this sort of passive, just staring at the baby uh, sort of vibe to her. But the Mary that the scriptures portray, the, the portrait of Mary at the first Christmas are much different than that. The scriptures paint a picture of uh, this 14-year-old girl who's got a fire to her, who has uh, something going on in her soul. And she's, uh, in fact, she writes essentially what is the first Christmas carol that I want to look at in just a few moments. And she is, is announcing this new thing that God is doing in this, in this world in this very real, personal, profound way. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Luke chapter 1 is where... I want to start Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And as you read this, as we read this together, I want us to notice how different this song is than how we often think about Mary and how different Mary is described at the first Christmas than we often see her. This is often uh, called Mary's Magnificat or My Soul Glorifies the Lord, Mary's Song uh, to magnify the, the Lord. This is the longest spe speech given by a woman in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's essentially the first Christmas carol that has ever been written. And it goes uh, like this. This would be the song that she sang, verse 46, Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And at this point, this, this is like a, a worship song that we would sing in church. But notice here, Mary starts to, to sing some lines in this first Christmas carol that we don't normally sing around Christmas time. She begins to say some things that we don't stereotypically think of going with the Christmas spirit. She, she says in the next part, it's like all of a sudden she puts a Neil Young record on or something. And she says... He has, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
And then she says this, and this is, seems strange when you read it on the surface. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. That seems like a strange thing. It's like, Mary, come on, get in the Christmas spirit. <laughs> uh, what is God, who is she talking about? And this isn't just in some sort of philosophical, esoteric way. She is describing it in the real world, in the here and now, rulers are going down. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And so Mary, this this scandalized 14-year-old girl, she starts with this, this powerful song. This is where the Christmas story begins. And an angel has appeared to her, and she, she just sings this song. She says some things uh, that are interesting. And she, she is standing on the fringes of society. She feels uh, her, her people, they have been abandoned by God. We read the Bible, and we read passages in the Old Testament where uh, God is announcing that a Savior, a Messiah, is going to come into the world. And then there's 400 years that go by. The, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bible, it's only just this one little page. But this one little page represents 400 years of expectation and longing. When is God going to do something? And Mary is on the outside looking in, feeling as if God, when is God going to show up? When is God going to do something? You are never closer to the original Christmas spirit then when you do something for somebody, when you pay attention to somebody who everybody else has forgotten about, because this is where the Christmas story begins. Ironically, this is a time of year that often uh, leaves many people, some of us know exactly what I'm talking about, feeling in deeper ways, God has forgotten about me. Ironically, this is a time of year that can intensify emotions of I guess I'm on the outside looking in. I'm on the fringes. I don't, I'm not on the top of things. This is a time of year that just intensifies and makes those emotions heavier. But ironically, the Christmas story starts there with somebody in that place saying, God has not forgotten us. God has not abandoned me. God is up to something and the heavens are cracking open and God's activity is new and fresh in the world. The Christmas story starts in that spirit. And this, this girl, this, this girl, God does not come through an empire. It starts with this girl in a really bad and desperate situation. This song, it, it has such a charge to it. It's been banned several times throughout human history. Most recently in, 19, in the 1980s in Guatemala, the, Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, was banned from being read in public places for fear that it would incite a riot. Not exactly the passive just away in a manger kind of Mary that we usually think of this time of year. So the question is, what is Mary talking about? Who is this king that she is announcing his day is done? Who is going down? What, is this just sort of a philosophical you know, statement she's making, or is this in the real world in the here and now? Now keep in mind, shortly after Mary would give this song, she would have to walk 70 miles from her home in Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. And this is a very difficult walk for anybody to make, let alone somebody who's carrying a full-term baby. And this is over difficult Judean wilderness, over very difficult terrain. And you could imagine the frustration by day three, day four of this walk, 
of, of carrying a full-term baby, of having to get to Bethlehem. And all of this is because a Caesar, 1,500 miles away on his throne, has lifted his finger and declared that he wants to take a census of the whole world. And so she arrives in Bethlehem, she has to be tired, and she's in the middle of nowhere in a town that, that probably she's never even been to. And she's essentially homeless. And she gives birth to this baby boy in this manger, in this makeshift stable. It essentially would be like a cave. And everywhere you go, when you walk out of the manger where, where Jesus is born in Bethlehem, when you walk out of the, the stable where he's born, everywhere you look in, in Bethlehem is directly to the southeast is this massive mountain called the Herodian. It stands 2,500 feet in the air. It's a man-made mountain that King Herod, the king at that time, had built as a monument to himself. There was no mountain there, and King Herod from his throne said, I want a mountain there, like you do. And they built a mountain right there as a monument to this great military victory that King Herod had. Everywhere you look in Bethlehem, you would see this massive mountain, even to this day, called the Herodian. Mary and Joseph and her family, everywhere in Israel would be these reminders of who the king is. So the question is, how does King Herod rule? What is King Herod like? What is the nature of King Herod? And often this time of year, he gets depicted as cartoonish and maniacal. But what, what, was that, what does that mean in the real world in the here and now? Most scholars believe that King Herod is the richest person who's ever walked on the face of the earth. Obviously, that's tough to measure in terms of economic scale, but he, he, it's believed in terms of his extravagance, in terms of his conquests and what he builds, that he's the richest king and the richest person to ever live in the entire world. I brought a picture in of what King Herod looks like. Uh, this, is, this is King Herod. He has a second cousin called Santa Claus, uh, which is the real weird twist on this story. Uh, but this is where he rules from. This is how he rules. I brought this chair in from my house. It's uh, <laughs> in my living room. It's a, it's a subtle piece of furniture. But we, uh, we often forget who, who is this guy in the real world. What is he like? He, he's a maniac. And how the world works 2,000 years ago is the Caesar in Rome, 1,500 miles away, rules the world, but the question is, if you're Caesar 1,500 miles away, how do you rule a place like Israel that would take you several days and several boat rides, or several months, really, to get to? You would appoint a king, these would be called client kings, that essentially would represent the interests of Rome and wouldn't have any loyalty to the Jewish people or the people of Israel at all. And the client king that Caesar has appointed for this province is King Herod. And he is just this brutal, unbelievable, if he's not anything else, he's a builder. He's building things all over the world. Monuments to him are still around in the world today. He builds at one point uh, a city called Masada. And he was very spiteful towards the Jewish people. All the way back in the Old Testament, you can read stories of the greatest king in Israel who lived a thousand times before Jesus, King David. He was on the run from King Saul, and he was hiding out in caves in Masada. And King Saul said to the Jewish people, if your greatest king lived in caves in Masada, then I'm going to live in luxury in Masada. You begin to get a sense of how much your hatred would swell 
that this guy needs to go down. He's building cities and monuments to himself. At one point, he builds a city that's still there to this day on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea called Caesarea. The largest port in the world at this time is 60 acres big. And Herod is extravagant. He's always trying to outdo Caesar. He's always trying to outdo like, his last project. So he builds a port in Caesarea that is 520 acres, the largest port in the world. It was the Dubai of its day. It was so extravagant. We don't even have a, have a modern day equivalent of how amazing Caesarea, this city, is. He's building things everywhere. He's financing the Olympic Games all the way away in Greece. He's giving money. He's desperate to be seen as a player on the world stage. He's giving money to people overseas. He's built three temples to Caesar, declaring that Caesar is God. You begin to get a sense for how much Mary and Joseph would have conversations around the dinner table about how this guy needs to go down. Because the question is, how does Herod finance all this? How does he pay for all these things that he's building? He's doing it through taxes. He's taxing the Jewish people 80 to 90%. Pieces of land that have been in your family that you've lived on for generations and generations. You can't even afford to feed your family. Meanwhile, Herod is building another castle that he'll probably never even go to. You begin to get a sense, the spirit and the heart from which Mary's Magnificat and her song comes from and where the Christmas story, the spirit of which the Christmas story begins in the world. This guy, Herod, he's just absolutely crazy, the things that he will do. At one point, he, uh, not only is he spending your money, he's doing it to do things that violate your beliefs. He puts a massive golden eagle, which was the symbol of Rome, right on the main gate as you walked into the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. He puts this massive golden eagle just as a reminder that Herod is really in charge, that Caesar is really in charge. And this eagle would violate the scriptures that you're supposed to have no images uh, of, of, of anything. You're not supposed to have any idols in, uh, before God. And so not only is he spending your money, he's doing it to violate your beliefs. People that are close to Herod, he's absolutely crazy. He has about 46 kids. He has about 11 wives. Uh, at one point, he gets a little bit suspicious of one of his wives, and she goes away on vacation for a while. Uh, she comes back, and he has her killed. He has one of his sons drowned in the family pool because he thought he was coming and vying for his throne and his power. On the, when Herod began to realize that he was sick and he was going to die, he ordered that when he died, the day that he died, that all the noble men in Israel would be gathered up and placed into a theater and executed upon Herod's death just to guarantee that there would be mourning in Israel when he died. This guy has issues. And he's holding on and white-knuckling his throne. I have noticed in my life that the more possessions I have, the more things I acquire, the more people in my life that I love, the more things that I have to lose, the more my anxiety grows over losing those things. The more my fear, the more I begin to white knuckle and hold on to things, the more we acquire, isn't it true, the more we have, the more we become terrified of losing it. 
the more our kingdom, our little kingdom in this world begins to expand, the more our anxiety and fear and our white knuckling of our kingdom begins. Ernest Hemingway has this brilliant quote where he said this, that a man's fear of death increases in direct proportion to his increase in wealth. That our, our fear of losing something grows. Our fear, the, the more we get, the more we have, the more we become terrified and we become people that begin to hold on. It's just human nature. And yet Jesus invites us into this other way of life that's about losing our lives so that we can have it. And it's interesting to see how Herod clings and holds on because the Christmas story is about this king who's holding on to his kingdom and misses the arrival of the true king. In Jerusalem, these magi, we call them wise men often, but the scriptures refer to them as magi. They aren't from Israel. They wander in, the scripture says, from the east, and they come into Jerusalem, and they begin asking people in Jerusalem, does anybody know where the king of the Jews has been born? Which is a really stupid question for wise men to ask. And they begin asking, because this, this could get you killed. Everybody in Jerusalem knows because he reminds them constantly of who the king is. And they come into Jerusalem and they're asking, well, does anybody know where the king of the Jews is? And instead of having them executed, Herod summons them and has a clandestine meeting with them because he's more terrified of this new king that's been born that everybody's talking about than he is of these magi from the east. And so this meeting goes down. If you have a Bible, it's in Matthew chapter two. And we'll just read this part of the story really quickly. And this is Herod's response. Matthew chapter two, verse seven. It says, then Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. That was not actually his plan. Verse nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presents, or they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is why we give presents. Verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then the story goes to Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child, this is Jesus, and the mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And we're not sure how long that was. But, and so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And this is a direct reference to uh, the Exodus period when Moses calls the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious 
and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is probably a town of two or 300 people. Uh, there's probably 20 or so boys under two that he, would order, that he would have ordered executed. And its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Herod begins to have these rumors. Herod begins to hear that his kingdom might be coming to an end, that there's a new sheriff in town. And he's clenching, and he's holding on, and he's white-knuckling his throne to the extent that he misses the greatest thing that God has ever done in the world. We have this tendency, if you're anything like me, to white-knuckle and to hold on to things and to cling to things. Things that define who we are. It might be money. It might be status. It might be power. It might be ego. It might be a relationship. But we have this tendency to white-knuckle and hold on to things and say, well, I've worked so hard for that. I can't lose that now. That, that's who I am. I can't lose that. And we have this tendency, if you're anything like me, to white-knuckle and to hold on. And in the process of white-knuckling our little kingdoms on this earth, it's possible to miss the new thing and the activity of God and what he's up to in your life. In the process of clinging. If there has been any consistent theme in my relationship with God over and over and over again, it has been my desire and my ability to cling and to hold on and to white-knuckle things. Over and over and over again. I know it sounds sort of stupid now. But several years ago, about 15 years ago or so, when I was in college, I began to pray like most college Students do, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I supposed, where am I supposed to go? What am I going to do? And I began to have this sense that I was supposed to be a pastor, which was really weird because I was the least qualified guy to be a pastor. And I would tell friends, I would say, hey, I, you know, we would talk at job fair. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I would say, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. They're like, seriously, what are you going to do? Is that a joke? What are you going to do? And I began, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be like a professional Christian. Seriously, like I'm supposed to, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. I began to have this sense, that's what I'm going to do. And one of the things that was the greatest fear and greatest anxieties, and I know this sounds stupid now, is I began to pray about this and think, okay, God, what does that mean? What am I gonna do? How am I gonna live? What, what does that mean for my life? One of the greatest fears was I knew that if I became a pastor, I could never drive a Porsche. I know that sounds stupid now, but think about it. I mean, even if I could you know, save up and afford it as a pastor, you, know, you can't drive it. Imagine that. Pull up next to your pastor at a stoplight and he's in a Porsche. <laughs> nice sermon today. Thank you so much. Brrr, you know. <laughs> Vanity plate says tithe on it. You know, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> and I remember as, as a college student, sitting at my desk, praying and just clinging, God, are there any other jobs? <laughs> because everything I'd learned about what life meant was defined in terms of possessions and stuff. I remember a couple years ago, my wife and I, we had this great setup in Atlanta. I've been with this organization since it began. I had a great boss, all our friends were Atlanta, in Atlanta, all of our family was in Atlanta. We had just this amazing setup, we just had a baby. And I went away on this spiritual retreat, which I don't advise if you like how your life is going because that will mess everything up. 
And I came back, and my wife and I began praying, and I, and, and I was telling her, I have this sense, I'm supposed to go back to the local church. I'd served in a local church years earlier, and I just, I, I have this sense, that's what I'm supposed to do, we're supposed to do this. And we began to pray, and we, okay, God, what does this mean for our lives? And there was this moment while we were praying in our living room, and I had permission to tell this story, where my wife leans over in the middle of the prayer, and we just built this house, and she leans over in the middle of our prayer of God will do whatever, wherever, and she's clutching the railing of the house. And she opens her eyes, and she looks at me, and she goes, anything but the house, God, like anything but the house. The Christmas miracle at our house is that she let me tell that story. And there's this desire, there's this thing. If there's any theme in my relationship with God, it's to clutch and to cling and to hold on over and to white knuckle over and over and over again. And God reminding me, I can use anybody, anywhere, anytime. I am proof of that. But I cannot work with a closed fist. I can't do anything with that. And when you're white knuckling something, isn't it true, God can't put anything new into a fist that is closed. And I have noticed in my life that there is this connection between my fists and my eyes. And just like King Herod, when my fists get closed and I am white knuckling and I am clenching, I miss the activity of God in the new thing that he's doing in the world. And the new thing he's inviting me into to be a part of. And the opposite is true. When I begin to pray like this, because there is another option, isn't there? To begin to pray and to begin to live a life like this and to hold the things that God gives us in our lives with a sense of gratitude, but also a sense that everything in life is fragile except Jesus. And when we begin to pray lives like this, I've noticed the more I have the ability to live this kind of life, with an open hand, the more I become aware of the new thing that God is doing in my midst and in the world. And Christmas is this reminder that it is possible to white-knuckle something and to hold on to something and to clench something and in the process miss out on what God is doing right in our midst. It's possible, isn't it? To white-knuckle and to hold on. What is the thing this Christmas season that maybe defines it guides your choices, it guides your life, it's who you are, and you clutch it and you cling to it. God can't put anything new into a fist that's like this. And maybe there's something new he's inviting you into, but you've been praying like this. There's another posture of life, a life of faith that says, God, my life is yours. And something about the release, when you begin to pray that way, we begin to realize this is the moment, as Jesus said so beautifully. Letting go is, is how we begin to live, that, that we take up our cross and we follow him in those moments of letting go. And in having our life, we find that, that having our life begins when we begin to lose it. One of the prayers that I'm praying this Christmas season, here's the Christmas prayer. God, would your kingdom come into the world because this is what Christmas is about. Your kingdom coming into the world. And in the process, God, of your kingdom coming into the world, would my kingdom leave? God, your kingdom come, even if it means that my kingdom leaves. God, your kingdom come. Just praying that together as a family. God, your kingdom come. Whatever that means for us, wherever that means for us. God, your kingdom come, my kingdom leave. And you come and sit in the place 
that you were born into this world 2,000 years ago to sit on the throne. And one of the things that you begin to realize when you pray that prayer, you don't make a very good king anyway. And praying that prayer and inviting Jesus into your life in those types of ways is where the Christmas story begins. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the Christmas story. I thank you that your son came to claim his, his throne, to claim his power, to claim his authority as the king over this entire world. And it was not a temporary kingdom. It's a kingdom that's alive in this world in the here and now. And we can lay hold of it in this room and in this world, but it starts with an open hand. Would we experience the new life and the new creation that Christmas invites us into? Would we be people that don't live with closed fists and with clenched fists and with white knuckles, but rather we would be the kind of people that have open hands? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.